This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, the podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. Remember to subscribe and download episodes in the iTunes store, Google Play, or on the Podbean app. And while you're there, I'd love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. So in July of 2017, during a hearing of the House Financial Services Committee, Maxine Waters, the ranking Democrat on the committee, asked Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin why he hadn't responded to a letter she'd sent him in May requesting information about Trump's financial ties to Russia. When Mnuchin responded by complimenting the Congresswoman for her service to California, Waters chastised him for wasting her allotted time and urged him to answer the question. When he continued to dawdle, Waters responded, reclaiming my time. She repeated the phrase, reclaiming my time, reclaiming my time, reclaiming my time, until a committee chairman silenced Mnuchin. Now, I chuckled at this at the time. I didn't find it just funny. I also found it inspiring though. And there's been a couple of times since 2017 that I've pulled it up and watched it. I was grateful that as a woman, it was a woman who was calling him out and reclaiming her time from somebody that she thought was wasting it or dawdling with it. Her interaction with Mnuchin inspired a lot of women who feel pushed around to start pushing back. And maybe not just women. Women are not the only ones who are pushed around. Reclaiming means to regain or to resume possession of something lost or taken. When we talk about reclaiming the self in therapy, which we talk about a lot, one of the questions that we have to answer is who are we reclaiming ourselves from? Or who or what took possession of us? Now, if you grew up around chaotic relationships, you may think that chaos is exciting and it's passionate. You might even believe that chaos is very similar to love or that love is about control and obsession. In a situation like that, safety would feel like boredom. On the other hand, you may have grown up in a home and with a family that was disconnected and disengaged. Closeness to you might feel threatening. Being known would feel invasive. And safety feels empty or alone. Often our family systems created a need to look for external solutions to our internal problems. This is where addiction and relationship dysfunction enter into our lives. In addictions and other dysfunctions, we've lost our way. And in the process of healing and recovering, we need to reclaim what we have lost. This usually requires us to go deep into our pain and the underlying feelings that we have fled from or that we have found external solutions to cover up. Often I tell clients that you have to allow your littlest boy or girl's heart to break so that your functional adult self, who we are developing in therapy, can step in and learn what to do. This is your present self, your wise self. However, often we can't move away from what we are until we thoroughly accept what we are, what we were, and what we had to be. Now, each of us has an internal narrative about our life, and we use this narrative as a way to see the world and explain it 
to ourselves. When I'm doing coaching with other therapists, I often will tell them, your client's narrative is the story that they could live with. May not be accurate. The majority of the time in therapy, in fact, we find that the story is missing some pieces or it had a better outcome than the reality. Now, those in recovery know that we regularly rewrite and retell our story so that it includes new perceptions, understandings, and conclusions. In fact, recent science has revealed that as we do this, as we rewrite and retell and add to our story accurate information, we appear to actually rewire our brain by building new and more functional neural pathways. Over time, as we continue to rewrite and retell our story to ourselves and to others, it makes sense that we would strengthen and deepen those neural pathways, providing ever more support for our recovery and healing. Some of those perceptions or understandings about ourselves that we are rewriting or retelling include things about what do you know about yourself? What speaks to who you are? What is important to you? What do you think about? What are your passions? What makes you smile? Recovery or therapy is a process of making sense of our life. Now for addicts, when they were in the throes of addiction, much of what they did made no sense to others. Often, as I talk to clients who have dealt with addiction in their lives, they will acknowledge that it made no sense even to themselves. And by the time they were ready for recovery, and they were willing to commit to therapy, their whole life no longer made sense to them. This is often the case as well for those who experience childhood trauma. Their feelings, their actions, their behaviors, what they do and don't do, often make no sense to others, and it's a mystery to them. Now, there are some concrete ways to do this, make sense of our life. You know, I've had more than a few clients ask people in their lives that knew them or knew their family. They're asking them questions. They're interviewing them to get information that maybe they lost a hold of or they forgot that they knew. Sometimes they didn't know this information. For me, this process of interviewing people around me actually left me with more questions than I had answers for. And so that wasn't necessarily beneficial for me, although it was telling to me that a lot of the people that I was asking some of these questions to didn't know or didn't have answers or didn't even ask the question themselves. And so that was good for me to know that I come from a story where people don't really know the story. Another concrete step that I think we often overlook is asking ourselves, taking our own inventory. Oftentimes in therapy, we start to open up to what we don't know that we actually know and to what we don't know that we don't know. We're open to answers that before would have been too much or scared us or kept us running. So a big part of therapy is to start to make sense of all of this. And I think that process continues as long as healing and recovery are maintained. Even when the truth is difficult and painful, facing it sheds light on the past and it allows us to increase our awareness about reality, the reality we're living in and the reality that we came from. This awareness can move us into insight, 
acceptance, openness, responsibility, and accountability. In therapy, it's common when healing from trauma and attachment wounds to do both a trauma egg and then an angel egg. So a trauma egg, if you haven't heard of that, I think both of the the trauma egg and the angel egg were developed by Marilyn Murray. So the trauma egg, you know, ideally when I'm working with clients, I like to get some of those big like poster paper, post-it note kind of things, poster paper size, and we draw an egg on it. And I have them start. I usually have them start in the lower left-hand corner of this egg-shaped oval that they have drawn. And they start to, um, how am I explaining this? Because you can't see me. So they'll, they're writing out the different traumas. So typically this is, is taking a trauma timeline and putting it into something that's drawn. And so they're starting with maybe their earliest memory. Sometimes the clients are doing it in a timeline and oftentimes they're organizing it in other ways. But this is a way of organizing the data that they have. So they'll draw a symbol Um, some kind of picture that goes along with the memory. And then they draw kind of a little parentheses type shape over it so that that's encapsulated. And then they go to the next one and they draw that and encapsulate it. And they draw and they keep going, you know, until they've gone through their entire trauma timeline. And then I have them in the left-hand corner write out three to five adjectives that describe dad and in the right hand corner bottom right hand corner three to five adjectives that describe mom and then at the top above the egg that they've drawn i have them write out based on this trauma timeline what is the mission statement that you received right this is usually something negative in their life or something that has become for them a personal negative belief about themselves and that they've started to carry out in their life. So we start to create this awareness around it. Now that can be an overwhelming activity to do. I've done my own trauma egg and I don't even know how many trauma egg sessions I've sat in, whether it was in individual therapy or in group therapy. But people start to connect to it, right? There starts to be awareness, acceptance, insight that starts to come from doing a trauma egg. Now, on the other hand, we do an angel egg. And so again, similar outline, we draw kind of on a bigger piece of paper, we draw an egg-shaped oval. And this one is our angel egg. Again, starting at the bottom, we start to draw experiences. So again, a symbol, stick figure kind of thing, doing something, something to that effect of moments in their life that were meaningful. Maybe they were experiences. Maybe they were places or people in their life that made them feel calm, collected, secure, comfortable, connected, empowered, or when you experience growth and acceptance. Now, usually these are experiences where there was maybe some profound joy or serenity, feelings of well-being, or of being understood, being known, being seen, and being part of something bigger. So I encourage clients to think of times when they were happy, when you felt carefree, spontaneous, at ease, or when something wonderful was happening and you were a part of it. 
Then in the bottom left-hand corner, I have them write three to five core traits about themselves. And then in the bottom right-hand corner, I have them write three to five strengths that they possess. And then at the top of that, again, what is your chosen mission statement? Now for me, by the age of two, I was mothering, whatever I could find. My mom used to tell stories that when we went grocery shopping, she always had to go to the produce department first and get me a bunch of bananas that I would then cradle and hold as though it was my baby. And then I would behave the whole rest of the shopping trip. I was fine as long as she started with the bunch of bananas, put it in my hands. When I was young at my grandma McAdams condo, I was outside exploring and I found a rock that was just right for me to hold as my own baby. My grandma let it take it home with me. And my mom would tell me that I carried it everywhere. I would wrap it in a blanket and rock it. I had a little rocking chair, wooden rocking chair that was my size. And I would rock it and hold this rock and kiss it. Until one day, my mom thought she was being helpful and she drew a face on the rock. I can still in my head picture the face that she drew and I was upset. I was mad. She said that I was so upset, I just kind of walked away from the rock and stopped mothering it and really didn't have much to do with it after she had done that. As I got older in my teen years, I didn't want kids. I didn't back then really understand why. I just knew I didn't want kids. And when I would hear my mom tell those stories of me as a small girl or even see pictures of my younger self with that rock all wrapped up in a blanket and me rocking it in that small rocking chair, it was hard to connect with that part of me, that part of me that I had been. Years later, as an adult and as a therapist and a mom and wife, when I learned about the angel egg and did my own trauma egg, and angel egg. There was this person on my angel egg. I always had remembered him. It's not like it just kind of manifest when I was doing this. It's not like I'd forgotten about him, but he was a part of my early childhood memories. He was a babysitter I had as a young girl. And I would often say he was the older brother I never had, but always wanted. I had so many good memories with him and of him. A lot of the memories I have so at that time, my house, behind the house that I grew up in, there was a field. It was just open. Now, eventually, probably maybe by the time I was 12 or 9 even, it started, that field was sold and it was developed and houses were built and all of that kind of stuff. But when I was young, when we moved there, it was just a big field. And so there were a lot of times where when he was babysitting me and my older sister, those, those are the memories I have, me, my older sister, and him. We would go out and we would explore in the field. I have so many memories of being outside with him when he was in charge of us. I also have memories of just singing songs. I remember just memories of just all three of us kind of singing at the top of our lungs to songs that he had introduced us to. I think most of them that I, at least that I recall that we would sing were kind of popular songs at the time that would have been on the radio or that he had the record album to. 
and we would play those and we would sing these ballads and we would just sing these songs. I also have memories of him doing my hair. You know, like many little girls, I did not enjoy the process of having my hair done unless my babysitter was doing it. And I just recall he would, you know, he would just put my hair in all these different like ponytails, usually more than the typical one or two that little girls have their hair in. And regardless of how he did my hair, I always felt amazing when he did my hair. I also remember this particular bedtime story. I don't know if he always told it at bedtime, but I remember it would be like a bedtime story that he would tell us. And it has such a great beginning. And then it just kind of goes nowhere, which was kind of the fun part of the story. And so it starts out, I'll tell you, because I still remember this to, to this day. It starts out and it says, this is what he would say to us. Like me and my sister as we're like, intently listening to him, hanging on every word that he would tell us. The story starts out and goes, it was a dark and stormy night and a ship was out to sea. And the captain said, Jack, my boy, tell us a story. So Jack began, it was a dark and stormy night and the ship was out to sea. And the captain said, Jack, my boy, tell us a story. So Jack began and it just repeats itself, right? But isn't that such a great beginning? And we would always sit there hoping that he had more to the story this time. And it was just one of those stories that just was a loop and just repeated itself. And I never knew what story Jack was telling except the same story that started Jack telling the story. I also remember one time my uh, mom's siblings. And so I think it, it was my mom maybe my dad, I don't remember if my dad was there, and her siblings. So my mom came from a family of six, just like me, and my mom was the oldest. And so we all went hiking up Mount Timpanogos. So Mount Timpanogos is this pretty big mountain in Utah County, and it's a pretty, I would say, maybe moderate hike. And we all went, and I remember making my babysitter, his name was Jerry. I remember making Jerry carry me. It was, so it was Jerry and then his younger brother, Doug, and then my aunts and uncles and my mom. And again, I don't remember if my dad was there and my sister who was two years older than me. And I remember it was hard and I pretty much uh, got worn out the first little bit of the hike. And so I insisted that Jerry carry me. And from what I recalled, he did. He totally carried me most of the hike. Now, years later, when I was in sixth grade, I was at kind of a, it was a summer camp, but it was only a month, so not the whole summer. And I was at summer camp with a friend of mine. And the last, we did like these little hikes, not hard, pretty short hikes. And they kept telling us that we were getting ready to do a bigger hike at the end of the camp. And... So at the end of the camp, we hiked up Mount Timpanogos. Now, when I went with my family and with Jerry and made Jerry carry me, we were going up the front side of Timp. And so it's, from what I remember, it's been years since I've done this hike. It's a kind of a paved road, paved trail. Again, it doesn't make it super easy, but it's a little bit easier hike than if you're going up the back side of Timp. So when I was in the sixth grade, 
that summer, we did the backside of Mount Timpanocos. And I just remember that hike. I mean, I knew it was a little bit harder than the front side of Timp, but I just remember thinking like, oh my gosh, I made somebody carry me up this hike. Like this is a hard hike and I made somebody carry me. So I had that memory with him. And then just this, this isn't necessarily a memory, although I can, you know, he's one of those people that when he smiles, he smiles with both his mouth and his eyes. And I could always picture his smile. But along with picturing that, kind of that picture memory, I also had this feeling memory of how seeing him smile made me feel, right? And it just, it made me feel like everything was good. Life was great. I was fine. I was secure. And we were going to have a good day. Now, he was only in my life for a couple of years, and then he and his family moved away. I would sometimes talk about him over the years. Obviously, my older sister remembered him, and she was in a lot of my memories with him. And my mom, of course, remembered him. Um, my mom had actually been his school teacher. That's how he was introduced into our life. Like my mom taught at the elementary school where he was going to school. And in the kind of the town that we lived in, she taught at that elementary school. And so he was one of her students. So she, of course, remembered him. And my younger siblings didn't really remember him, but they would hear us talk about him from time to time. So they more knew of him, but didn't necessarily have memories of him. And then as I got older, I didn't really talk about him anymore. I remembered him, but I didn't necessarily talk about him. And that one song that I associated with him the most, there was a couple songs that I still to this day can remember and I know that he was the one that taught them to us. But there was one song in particular that whenever I played it, you know, my mom had the album, the record album. Eventually, you know, I had the cassette tape and I still to this day have it on my phone. It's a John Denver song. I'm a huge John Denver fan. And probably a lot of that is due to uh, my babysitter, Jerry. But there was this one particular song, Sunshine on My Shoulders. Sunshine on my shoulders makes me happy Sunshine in my eyes can make me cry Sunshine on the water looks so lovely Almost always makes me high So when I played this song, it brought back memories of him. And even more than memories, like I said, it brought back the feelings I had about me when he was around. Feelings that made me smile, that reassured me 
that made me sentimental. And they always made me feel expansive is the word that I've used. I don't really know a better word for it, but it made me feel open and expansive and like I could do anything. Again, those aren't necessarily the lyrics of the song, but that's how that song always made me feel. And I kind of had this one memory that I would maybe pinpoint. I don't think that like in this memory we were listening to the song, but I have this memory that goes along with that song of being outside. My house had been built and then we moved into it. And at the time we moved into it, there was no yard. And so I'm sure much to my parents' chagrin, I loved playing in the water and making this mud, right? And so I just have this memory of playing with the garden hose and watching the water and making mud. There's not a memory of me like playing in the mud or anything like that, but just playing with the water in my tank top and my shorts. And again, this sun would have been on my shoulders, right? And anytime I kind of just get that glimpse, it's hardly a memory, right? It's just kind of a glimpse of a memory. And that song, I just feel like everything is fine. It's just a calming, reassuring feeling that I get. When I was young, I used to wonder if our paths would ever cross again. If somehow, someday, chance would like put us in each other's path again. And I was certain that I would recognize him. Well, six years ago, this month actually, December, my mom unexpectedly passed away. She was 68 when she died. And we think she died of a blood clot. Like I said, it was unexpected and she passed away on December 30th. After getting through the funeral and all of the things that go along with death initially that you have to tend to, those of my siblings that were living here in Utah, so four of the six were living here in Utah, we started going through the house. My mom and dad moved into this house when I was three years old, so that's 1973. And then my mom passed away the end of 2014. So she had always lived in that house since then. And there was a lot to go through. If you've ever had to do this, then you know what this process entails. It's a necessary part of getting the home ready to sell and move forward. And it's so much more than that. My mom was also a saver and she had filing cabinets and they were full of papers and different things like that. And as me and my siblings would sit in a, in a room and we'd go through it and try to empty it, you know, we'd go through every single thing. I mean, sometimes you'd open something and think, oh, there's nothing in here that we need, right? Like, I mean, my mom had the original like loan paperwork from 1973. I'm thinking to myself in 2014, like how in the world is this needed or necessary or helpful? But we had it. And so you might start out thinking like, oh, this is all just garbage. It just needs to, you know, go. And then you'd find one, two, maybe three things that you actually needed from that pile. So when the next pile came and you thought that it was all just unnecessary and didn't need to be looked at, the last one had taught you there were three things that were necessary. And so you'd go through paper by paper and piece by piece of everything in that house. And so my siblings and I worked on this every Saturday. We started not the first Saturday in January, but the second Saturday in January. And we would spend about five or six hours every Saturday through mid-May. 
So four of us working for five or six hours every Saturday for, you know, four months. That was a lot of time. And then there were some nights um, during the week if we had time that we'd get together and again, do some of the work. And a lot of times our spouses would come and help, you know, but they didn't really know what to go through. And again, this process was so much more than just going through stuff. And so we were going through all of this stuff and we had finished the upstairs and we were down in the basement and we were actually going through the room that was my room when I was a little kid and had been my room until I moved out of the house. So I moved down when my younger two brothers were born. So the two after me, when my second brother was born, my older sister and I moved downstairs to that basement bedroom. And so that had been my bedroom since I was six until I moved out at, you know, 19. And then, you know, when my next, my youngest two siblings, brother and sister were born, then my two brothers moved from their room upstairs down into, for a while they were in the room next to us. But then eventually they moved into what was my old bedroom. And so it had changed. You know, it wasn't a girl's room anymore. It was a boy's room. But I remember sitting there on the floor of their bedroom on the carpet, going through this box. And, you know, my other siblings are all sitting there going through boxes. And I came across my babysitter's uh, wedding invitation that probably would have been in the 80s. I think I, I don't remember the date on it, but it probably would have been in the 80s. And... For the first time, right? I had this like, maybe I'm going to come across his path someday. Maybe chance or something random is just going to happen and our paths will cross. And that was kind of where that had left. It had never, never crossed my mind that I could look for him on social media. I think just because my memories of him were early in my childhood when like the internet and social media was like not even a thing. It had just never crossed my mind to look for him on social media until that moment. And so I'm sitting there on the basement floor and I'm thinking, why, why haven't I looked for him? And so I picked up my phone and I opened Facebook and I did a quick search for his name and up pops him. And I immediately recognized him. I recognized his eyes. I recognized that smile. And I sent him a message through Facebook and just said, Hey, I don't know if you remember me and this is what's happened. And this is currently what's going on. And I just thought of you and, you know, I sent him a friend request and then I, I basically sent him that message. And then I put my phone away and got back to work and went through what we needed to get done that day. And by the time I got back to my house, after leaving my mom's house, he had responded. He had accepted my friend request and he had responded. And he had said to me like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that you remember me. To which I'm thinking, remember you? I have vivid memories of you. Like you were a significant part of my life. And I don't remember what else he said in the message. And then he basically said like, hey, can we arrange a phone call? I think at the time he was sitting at an airport when he got my message with his mother, gave her the news that my mom had passed away. And so uh, we got on the phone that night And I don't recall, maybe like an hour conversation, him telling me, you know, kind of where he was in his life. Me, basically, this is where I am. This is, you know, married kids, just kind of different aspects of our life, what he did for work, what I did for work. You know, he asked some questions about what had happened and how my mom died and some different things like that. We had a phone call and 
you know, we said, let's keep in touch. And so, you know, I mean, a couple of texts every now and then, nothing major, but like he was, you know, basically he was back in my life. And my sister, my older sister, so he obviously knew her, she lived out of state. And so she was going to be in town. It was like in the springtime of that year, she was going to be in town. And so I had reached out and texted him and said, hey, my sister Tammy's going to be in town. Like, you know, she would love to see you. I would love to see you. Would it work for the three of us to get together and go to lunch? And, you know, he responded like, of course, I would love to do that. We set up a time, we set up a day, we set up a place that we would meet. And so we get to this, this time I left work. It wasn't a far drive from my office. And so I get to the restaurant that we were going to meet at and he pulls up and gets out of his car. And, you know, I was just kind of getting out of my car at the same time. And of course I, I just recognized him. Like I would know that face. I would know him anywhere. And we gave each other a hug. I had gotten a text from my sister saying that she was running a little bit late. And so we went into the restaurant, got a place to eat. We're just going to wait for her to get there before we, we ordered and stuff. And so I was asking him, we were just kind of, you know, talking a little bit. I was asking him, like, I don't, I don't know what the age difference is from me to you. Like, and I said, I don't even remember how old I was when you babysat me. I told him, I said, in my memory, I think I was six and seven years old. And, you know, he said like, oh, well, I mean, that explains why you think you remember me. He said, no, he said, you were three and four years old, which at the time really kind of confused me. I didn't think that I was that young or even that I had memories from that young of an age. And I said to him, well, maybe, maybe all of these memories that I've associated with you I just kind of randomly associated with you, but they're not actually connected to you. And, you know, he said, well, this is why I'm so surprised that you remembered me because again, you were three and four years old, which really would have made my sister five and six. So even she was fairly young. He said, well, what memories do you have? And so of course, where I started, I told him, I said, well, I remember this story. And he kind of got a little smile in his eyes. And I said, it was a dark and stormy night and the ship was out to sea and he kind of started chuckling and he said, oh yeah, that's me. That's me. I would tell you guys that story. And I said, yeah. And I said, and, and I remember these songs and I think you taught us these songs. And so I started naming the songs and he was like, yeah, yeah, I did. I did teach you guys those songs and we would sing them and just belt them out. I said, yeah. And I said, and then I have this memory of you. I feel a little bit better if I was only three and four years old. But I said, I have this memory of you and your brother coming to hike Mount Timpanogos with my aunts and uncles and stuff. And he nodded and he said, yeah, yeah, that was me. And I said, and I made you carry me the better part of the whole way up there. And he was like, yeah, yeah, you did. And I said, how old were you? And he said, well, I was 10 and 11, which also kind of took me back a little bit because that's really young. And he was a significant, profoundly significant, positive influence in my life. And he was telling me on that particular hike, he said, yeah, there were times I got tired. And I'm like, yeah, of course you did. You're carrying, even though I was three and four, like a three or four year old, they're, they're heavy. 
when you're climbing. And I said, and you, he said, I would ask, you know, other people to take a turn carrying you. He's like, as you were not going to walk or hike. And he said, but nobody, nobody really wanted to. And like inside, I'm just like, oh my gosh, the safest person in my life was a 10 year old boy. Like where, where were these, I, my aunts and uncles were older than that. Like, I mean, my youngest aunt would have been like 13, 14, but still that's older than 10. You know, some of my uncles would have been teenagers. If my dad was there, certainly he should have felt some responsibility for me. And yet he didn't. And so we got to talk. I don't know how long my sister came and we started talking and just going down memory lane and talking about different things. And he had questions. You know, I remember him telling us, he said, when your mom hired me to babysit, he said, she told me, I don't care what the house looks like. I don't care if it's messy. I don't care what you guys do. I don't care, you know, what you guys eat. Your job is to make these two girls happy. And he said, and I remember thinking to myself, you know, looking at how young you were, three and five, like, why aren't these girls happy? I don't know that I wasn't happy. I was definitely happy whenever Jerry was in my life and whenever he would come. I remember my mom sometimes telling me, that, you know, like on, on a weekend or something, if they were going out, that she wouldn't, she would get a different babysitter besides Jerry because she would say like, Jerry needs a break. Like he's with you guys all the time. And I was so offended, like a break, like why would he need a break from me? And so he did. I said, well, you did your job. You made us very happy. And as we talked, you know, he shared that like he was aware at 10 and 11 years old, he was aware that my parents had a really unhealthy and dysfunctional marriage. And, you know, as we shared that they'd been married 28 years when they divorced, he was surprised, right? He was surprised that they made it 28 years. And I said, well, not without some scars, like that marriage left scars on, on all of us. And it was just so good to reconnect with him and have him back in my life and to be able to have some of those conversations. I've been really blessed a couple of times, I think just... I don't know if it's blessed. I don't know if it's chance, but to have conversations with people who are able and capable, you know, not that they always know. I can't necessarily, I mean, I could interview them. I basically did with Jerry, but he was 10 and 11. So his information was somewhat limited, but to be able to go back and to uh, talk to him about some of those things and hear him talk about my mom, you know, like I said, she was his school teacher. My mom, when she was a school teacher, she usually taught fourth grade and sixth grade. There was a brief time period, I think two years that she taught kindergarten, but typically she taught the older grades, fourth grade or sixth grade. And so I could never, as a, like growing up, I could never remember, you know, how that all worked with Jerry and what age he was when she taught him. She was his fourth grade teacher. And so just kind of putting some things together and being able to say like, yep, that that part of my timeline lines up or this part of my timeline had to be adjusted. There were things that had to be adjusted. But after talking to him, you know, I, like I said, I've had that John Denver song, Sunshine on My Shoulders on my phone since I've had phones that could hold music, right? And be the same thing as a MP3 player. And there is this one verse that, well, there's two verses actually. 
So the first one says, If I had a day that I could give you I'd give to you a day just like today If I had a song that I could sing for you I'd sing a song to make you feel this way If I had a tale that I could tell you I'd tell a tale sure to make you smile And I think I knew that. I think I knew going forward in my life that Jerry wanted me to be happy and that if he could, he would make me happy because he did for the two years that he was in my life. Sometimes our biological family, our family of origin, may not always be able to provide the kind of modeling that we needed or the nurturing we needed, the love we needed. So in recovery, we decide to supplement our family of origin with a family of choice, a collection of surrogate relatives that we choose to have in our life. They might be a mother or father figure, a mentor, a sibling you never had, a best friend, an uncle or an aunt. Often after my clients have done a trauma egg and then done an angel egg, I'll say to them, so what did you have? Now that you have an accurate inventory, what did you have and what didn't you have? And where is your family of choice? Where do you need them to be? And we start to become creators of what we longed for and what we deserved. Angie Vietz, I think that's how you say it, I'm not sure, a clinical psychotherapist and eating disorder specialist asks this question. She says, consider who you were before you were being asked to be anything other than just you, before life and hurt and loss got in the way. Who were you? For me, the things that come up, I was carefree. I was spontaneous, spunky, Daring, loving, open, trusting. I had to ask myself, how do I reclaim those things so that I can be that again? And that's been a lot of the work that I've done as an adult and that I think I will continue to do in many ways and in many paths of my life going forward. What are you reclaiming? 
Who were you before you were being asked to be anything other than just you? At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and entertainment and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. The Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me to be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I am not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.